used to live out on some acreage, and uh, our house was situated behind another fella in front of us who had eight acres, and our driveway weaved through his land. And so it was a long gravel driveway getting back to our house. And I would come home from work. I had an old 78 Ford, and I would come home from work, and I would get to the edge of our land, and there would be my son waiting for me. He would be waiting for me to be done with work. I don't know what he was doing all day. I don't know if he heard my truck coming, and that's what led him to wait for me. But he was always there, and I would stop, and he would get in the truck, and then we would drive the rest of the way to park the truck. And it was a, it was a wonderful season. I always remembered, and I always remembered thinking, I wonder what he was doing while he was waiting. Did he wait there all day? Or... Did he wait there all day or, or what was what led him to wait and how was he waiting? Well, Jesus has gone to prepare a home for us and he has promised that he would return. But it has been a long time and we've been waiting for thousands of years and it seems like it will never come. The question is, what are we doing while we're waiting Jesus, we looked at two weeks ago, the parable of the ten virgins. And that parable is set in the context of the disciples asking questions about the end times. About what it would be like. When would he come? Would Would he tell them when that was? But he doesn't tell them, right? He gives them parables. And the parable of the virgins being proposed to meet him. And when that will be. And he follows that parable with another parable. The parable of the talents. And Jesus tells this parable to give us directions on what we should do while we're waiting. The question is, when Jesus returns, what will he find? Will he find us waiting? And what will he find us doing while we're waiting? Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to begin today at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, 
I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we are humbled by your word. We are humbled by the gift of faith which you have entrusted to us. We ask as we open this word that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand so that we may behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. Verse 14, Jesus begins, For it will be like, he is not referring to verse 13, but he is referring to verse 1. There in verse 1 it says, The kingdom of heaven will be like. And then he tells a parable. He's explaining to them what the end times will be like. What it's going to be like when the end comes in the kingdom of God. And he refers back to that just by saying, for it will be like, he means it will be like when the kingdom ends, it will be like a man going on a journey. This parable begins similarly to the parable of the wicked tenants with a wealthy businessman entrusting something to his servants and then going on a long journey. This time the action is on what the servants do with what he has entrusted them with. Jesus, in light of his impending death and his subsequent ascension to his father after his resurrection, he wants the disciples to be clear about how they are to live their lives in between. In the time in between where we all are. That time that we live in from the Father who come in glory in that moment. And so this is relevant for us here today. How do we live? Jesus begins by explaining that it's like this. A man entrusts his property, the financial management of his property, to several of his stewards. One Five talents, one, two, and one, one. He expects a return from them. When he comes again, he will have a reckoning. And the account books will be opened. The three servants, but there are only two responses. The first two servants, they put the money to work. But the second hardly works at all. Let's look at these two responses as we answer the question, what would Jesus find when he returns? He will find servants who worked hard, but he will also find servants who hardly worked. Which are you? 
Let's look at this first set of servants. The first is given five talents. This is the equivalent of 20 years wages. Remember, we looked at uh, the wages of a day laborer, right? Were denarii. And a talent is 10,000 denarii. 20 years worth of a day laborer's work in their economy is five talents. He invests them with this large... And notice that it's because of his ability... He receives this, these talents, each according to his ability in verse 15. The ESV says, traded, he who had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them. Now that's kind of misleading because it sounds like he goes and invests it in the stock market. Like he's just, let's just make a trade and see if we can, you know, accomplish this quickly. And then the next day it's got ten talents. But the action of the parable is always sped up, right? But it says that after a long time, the master returns. This is not like investing in the stock market and then the next day having a win, uh, a big win. This is like, uh, and the Greek is a little bit better here because it's worked with them. He took the master's money and he put it to work. He invested in some venture. He started a business. He used the money, and over time, he developed it so that it was profitable. I want you to imagine this with me, right? This is a a man, he's got a, a keen eye for carpentry, so he goes into developing houses. And pretty soon, he's got a reputation of being a great craftsman. And now everybody wants a home on the Sea of Galilee. And they're all coming to him, and he's building these fancy homes. And over time, he's developed this company that's very successful. He used the master's money to start this venture. And now, years and years later, after determination and grit, hard work and patience, he has turned a profit. And in the meantime, he has been waiting for the master to return, eager to show him what he has done with the resources that the master had given him. The development was not overnight, but after a long time. And this is representing that time between Christ's ascension and his coming again. The second servant, likewise, imagine with me. He's not so good with carpentry, but he's great on the sea. So he starts a shipping company. And he's moving stuff from the south side of Galilee to the north side. And pretty soon he's got a whole fleet of ships. You see when he, what's happening? It's not a quick overnight win. It's a hard work producing this effect of five talents making five more. Two talents making two more. It didn't happen overnight. It happened with a lot of work. These servants put the master's money to work. Now, this is not a new story. Jesus is not, as we've seen throughout the parables, he's not just picking up something out of thin air and making it up so that it kind of fits the context. This is the story that he has been telling from this, turning to chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. And I want us to get a little biblical theology for what Jesus is doing here in this story as it sums up 
what we should be doing in the Christian life. If you don't get Genesis right, if you don't understand Genesis, you will not understand the New Testament. You will not understand the whole storyline of Scripture. If you err in Genesis, there's a good chance you're going to err elsewhere. This is why dispensationalism, just as an aside, has been so damaging to the Christian church. Because we have put an arbitrary split between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we've made the Old Testament irrelevant for Israel only. But nothing could be further from the truth. And I want to show you that this morning. Look with me at Genesis 1.26. We're going to get Adam's marching orders. His task that God is calling him to. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And then he continues in chapter 2, which is kind of a a zoom in, if you will. It's not a separate creation account, but he's focusing in on his particular creation of Adam and Eve. And he makes Adam and Eve, and then he places them in the garden. And he says this, chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, so what we have here is what's called the cultural mandate. God makes Adam and Eve, and he places them in this beautiful garden sanctuary. All the language is meant to remind us of the temple where Moses erected this tabernacle and then later Solomon this temple where God is to be worshipped. God places Adam in this beautiful garden and he gives them everything. And he gives them a job. He gives them a task. And he says to Adam, do you see this? Do you see this Garden of Eden? This is what I want the entire earth to look like. I want you to spread out from here, being fruitful and multiplying, subduing all of creation for my glory. Do you see that gold down there? Go, use it, and beautify my world that I have made. I have made you in authority over everything, second only to me. And you can eat anything you want. There's just one thing that I'm asking you not to do. Don't touch, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
You're not ready for it. Don't go near it. Now imagine Adam had done that. Imagine what the world would be like if he was faithful. And you would be imagining the new heavens and the new earth. It began in a garden, but it ends in a garden city with the new Jerusalem. God dwelling with us in His light so that we no longer need the light of the sun. As John says in the Revelation, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That's into the new Jerusalem. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean who does what is possible or false, but only the written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the final fulfillment of the cultural mandate. Just as the servants in the parable today, the kings are bringing their gifts. Look what we have accomplished for you. You gave us five talents. Now we bring all our wealth and honor into the new Jerusalem to glorify and beautify your city just as the servants in this parable today bring their talents and they say, joyfully, look what we have accomplished. Now there's a couple things that we need to take note of here. What is the talents that Jesus is talking about? And while we're answering that question, I want to answer another question almost simultaneously. Is Jesus teaching works righteousness? It sure seems like it, right? We are congratulated based upon what we're able to do in this life. But I thought it was by grace alone, through faith, by the Spirit. I, what's going on here, Jesus? we got to answer this question. We need to understand what Jesus is teaching, and that I can emphatically say is not works righteousness. But why? To understand that, we need to understand covenant theology. We need to understand what Jesus has done. Adam was given this charge of being fruitful and multiplying. He had a task. And what did he do? He wasn't faithful. Right? We're, we're not standing now in the new heavens and the new earth, the, Jer- the new Jerusalem. We don't see the world glorified as a, as a new Eden everywhere. Instead, we see a world infected by sin. Adam disobeyed, failed at his task, and was kicked out of the garden. And the rest of Scripture outlines for us Adam after Adam after Adam who failed at their task. Noah, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and David, and on and on. Men who come close to being faithful, but fail ultimately at their tasks. Of being fruitful and multiplying, of subduing the earth. But Jesus, Jesus comes onto the scene. He's a new David. He's a new Moses. He's greater than Abraham. And he fulfills where all those stories failed. Where all those men and women who worked hard, but ultimately failed. Jesus is faithful. Jesus completes the cultural mandate. Sort of. And this is where it's important, right? What happens when Jesus died and rose again? That's not the end of the story. Otherwise, why would we be sitting here? But that's only the beginning. 
Jesus began the new heavens and the new earth in his death and resurrection. Paul likens this to the first fruits, right? He is the first one to participate in that new creation through his resurrection. But what happens to all of those who are united to him by faith? What is, how does Paul describe us? We also are new creations in Christ. We, by faith, are participating in what he has in fullness. Already we are, but not quite, right? It's not a complete reality. This is what we've talked about, the already, but not yet. Already we are kings, ruling and reigning with Christ. But yet there are many enemies in the land. There is much work with the cultural mandate that needs to be done. And God, in Christ, through His body, the church, is continuing that work. Because what happened when when men try to build empires? Do they do it for the glory of God? They turn out to be Babel, right? Let us make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower that will reach up to heaven so we can have a name. And we name our cities after ourselves. And we glory in our accomplishments. We don't glory in God and we don't spread the image of God for His glory. But we mar His image. And this is what all empire building or our cultural efforts apart from Christ. Apart from redemption. In Him, we have been commissioned, right? Matthew 28 to go and make known to all the nations what Jesus has done. That He has saved us from our sins. He has made us right with God and that we now are a part of that new creation. And so we tell the good news of the gospel and as more and more people believe and are brought into the kingdom of God, what happens? That renewed image of God is spread throughout the whole world. Worshippers. I love John Piper's quote, evangelism exists because there are places where God is not glorified. There will be a time where evangelism is not necessary. When we are all worshiping God and and seeing Him face to face. So, It's helpful to understand what Jesus accomplished in the gospel so that we don't get backwards what we need to do in order to be faithful. This is the indicative and the imperative, right? If you reverse what God has done for you in the gospel, you end up getting works righteousness, right? You strive and you work hard because you want God's favor, But the gospel tells you, you have received God's favor apart from any work you could ever do. And you stand justified, made right by God. So the parable is not about works righteousness because these talents are gifts that the master gives to the servants. What gift have we been given? Our faith. It's a gift. And faith as James said, is not dead. It has to go to work. It has to work through love. Faith goes to work. So this parable is not teaching works righteousness, but it's, it's showing that 
This is the response of those who have been given a gift. How will they use that gift? They didn't do anything to earn the five talents. But God, the Master, freely gave it to them. And armed with the Great Commission, and it's corollarily in the cultural mandate, we set about our work of subduing and ruling, being fruitful and multiplying by spreading the good news of the gospel everywhere. Paul says we are a fragrance wherever we go, either of life or death. Life to those who believe in the gospel and death and judgment to those who refuse to believe. It's important here for us to understand as we try to answer the question, what are these talents? What are these resources that God has given us? We see that it is a gift of faith. And faith is that gift that works. It goes to work. Paul says faith working through love is what accomplishes the mission of the gospel. And here the Protestant doctrine of vocation is important for us to understand what these resources are that God has given us. A vocation is an, an a calling, something that God has given to you. For instance, as a Christian, God has called me to be a husband, a father, a son, a brother, a pastor, a citizen, and on and on and on. All these various callings that God has given me. Each of these, God calls me to put faith to work, to use my strength, my intellect, my emotions, to cultivate and shape for the glory of God and the good of my fellow man. They're not to be pitted against one another. Like, well, I'm a, I'm a husband and a father and a pastor. I can't do all those, so I'll just do this one. No, they're to be used, integrated holistically, so that all of them tend for the glory of God. My drive in each calling is to ask, how best can I glorify God and lead others to glorify them too? How best as a husband can I glorify God? Some of these callings, God is explicit. He tells us exactly how we are to be as husbands. We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I need to be studying the scriptures to see how Christ loved the church. And then I need to put that into practice in my marriage. Loving my wife as Christ loved the church. And this, but there are many callings that God has not given us specific details. And there we need wisdom. And the various ways that lied in the scripture to our callings. And what that would look like will be different in every situation. But we need to be asking ourselves, how in this calling, as a pastor, how as a nurse, how as a teacher, how as a dentist, an occupational therapist, how can I be glorifying God with what He has called me to do? It also means that we're working to lead others to glorify God in their callings. So what, it, what are the talents? The talents God has given to you are your several callings, redeemed in Christ, put to work for His glory and the good of your neighbor. Master, You gave me five talents. Here I have made you five more. He was joyful in taking what the master had given him and taking the raw potential and realizing it. You gave me a wife and I loved her. And look at her now, she's radiant. You gave me children 
And now we have grandchildren and great-grandchildren all worshiping you. You called me to be a teacher and look at the countless lives I have impacted, enabling them to glorify you with their lives. And on and on and on, we present to God our callings, our talents, the ways in which God has called us to serve him by bringing glory to him. When Jesus returns, what will he find? Will he find you working, busy to reflect his glory in all that he has called you to do? Or will he find a servant that hardly worked? See, this master also found a servant who took what he was given and buried it in the ground. I want to look closely at the servant's attitude and figure out what motivated him to go in a completely different direction than these other two servants. Look with me at verse 18. It says, He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And then if you skip down to verse 24, it says, He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here's what's yours. And two things stand out from this servant's behavior. First, his view of the master. And second, he's driven by fear. I want us to look quickly at these two things, the deficient view of God and fear. He says, I knew you to be. How does he know that? How does he know that the master is such a hard man when he has been given this gift? He's been given stewardship over the master's property. This is really the crux, the divide in all of humanity is our response. And we see it here in these Two responses. What led Adam to sin against God? Why did he, out of all of the benefits that God had given him, this beautiful garden with the fruit just literally coming up out of the ground, him not even barely having to do anything for it, a sea of yeses and one no. Just one. And he just focuses right there on that no. Right? Satan comes and he tempts them. But how does he tempt them? What does he lie about? He lies about the character of God. He gets Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness. That God doesn't really care about them. That he's actually stingy. That he, he doesn't really have their best interests at heart. As soon as that lie was introduced, they looked at God like the servant in this parable, saying, God seems like a hard master. He wants us to make the world Eden, reaping where he didn't sow. We're supposed to spread his rule and reign throughout the world, gathering where he didn't scatter. I don't think so. Let's go eat the fruit and hide from him. Let's go dig a hole and hide our talent in the ground. How damning to have that deficient view of the character of God who is goodness, he exudes it. How do you view God? 
See, it's easy. It's easy to allow our experience in this life to color our definition of who God is. We begin to define Him based upon how we have experienced Him. We've experienced hardship. They must have come from God. And that colors the way we think about Him. God is a father. My father was terrible. He was abusive. He never showed me love. He wasn't good to me. And it colors the way we view God. We subtly allow our experiences to shape our view of God. And we no longer see Him as good. But God is good. He's infinitely so. God is good even in the bad things that you have encountered. He is working them all for your good. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that's convenient. He's working everything for my good. I guess he just gets off the hook. Is that just an acceptable way of saying God wasn't able to prevent it from happening? No. It means that there's a deep structure to everything that happens to you. And the good and the bad and the ugly are all orchestrated in such a way that in the end, it works for your good. And to ensure that, God proves it by sending His only, well-beloved, innocent Son who enters into our lost condition and dies in your place. He dies for you. He was completely innocent. And yet He took your place. And if you don't learn to frame your sufferings in light of the cross... If you don't see your sufferings in light of what Jesus did on the cross, you will resent God. You will have a deficient view of God. And you will end up like this servant. Because you cannot let your experiences, apart from what God has done in Christ, color your view of God. It will lead to the fear that will lead to this kind of fear that's crippling. Like Adam hiding in the garden, you will bury your God-given resources so that you never glorify God. Fear, that has been, fear has been the number one crippling thing that we have faced in this pandemic. None of us have good answers, but we have a lot of fear going around everywhere and not a lot of trust That God is in the midst of it working, accomplishing His purposes. Fear cripples us. and We begin to get a deficient view of God and so we waste our resources. We say, I'm not going out. I'm not even going to talk to my neighbor. I don't want to get it. Fear cripples you because you always keep your eye on the past. The other servants put their master's money to work in hope. They know he's coming and they're waiting for that. I can't wait to please the master. He's going to see what I've done. But the other servant is thinking about the past. I know that he did that. He sowed where he didn't, reaped where he didn't sow. He scattered seed. He's thinking about the past. He hides And he's waiting for the day the master returns. To be sure, I think that this is articulating an unbeliever. But Jesus is telling this to his disciples. He's warning them. Don't let this become you. 
He was given a gift just like everyone is given a gift. The free offer of the gospel. But why don't some respond? Why are there those who turn away from that great gift? And we scratch our heads and we wonder, how is that even possible? But Jesus is warning us, be careful because this could be you. You could, through a deficient view of God and fear, take the resources, faith, and bury it in the ground. Because you don't have your eyes on the cross. You don't see Jesus and you don't have the hope of the resurrection. And so you have everything that goes wrong. And so you step out in faith. But once you have that view of God, you see it everywhere. You see the goodness of God poured out on the cross. You will see God's goodness poured out everywhere. You'll see it in the love between a husband and a wife. You'll see it in the face of your child. You'll see it when you catch that fighting bass. You see the goodness of God on display everywhere. But this servant doesn't see that. All he can focus on is this one narrow thing. And he misses the whole. So I ask you, do you have a deficient view of God? It's a slippery slope and it will lead to fear. How do we correct that? How do we get over that? We have to be saturated in the faith arousing word of God. If we don't fill our minds with what God has said he is, who he is and what he has done, then we will get our view of God from our experiences and not from scripture. Staying close to how God has revealed himself. It also means that you're not looking at yourself. You're looking at God. You have a deficient view of God because you need to get out of the way. So much of our problems is just us needing to move out of the way. It's not about you. Get a view of God. You have to look at God. You have to stop looking at yourself. Faith is self-forgetting. It's future-focused and hope-filled so that fears melt and your passion becomes, how can I spend and be spent for the kingdom of God? The master returns, what will he find? Will he find you working hard or hardly working? God has entrusted you with great resources. You must put them to work to improve the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for allowing our own experiences to color the way that we view you. You have so clearly demonstrated your goodness and love for us in the cross of Jesus Christ, where you poured out your wrath upon the innocent sufferer on our behalf, saving us from that same fate. And you have given us the gift of faith, and you have called us to work.
to put it to work, to believe and step out, to trust you even when it doesn't make sense, even when others are burying their resources in the ground, even when fear is crippling all of us. Give us eyes to see. Give us the kind of faith that puts our faith to work. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.